All right, it is time for the Munitions Munitions Podcast. What the hell is the Munitions Podcast? Well, that's a podcast about guns, munitions, legal regulations. I know that sounds boring, but it's not going to be boring, I promise. Um, and uh, and all things uh, firearms in the community, perhaps. Uh, Steve Palmer here, local Columbus, Ohio, practicing attorney, mostly criminal defense, here with Derek DeBras. Derek, how you doing today, man? I'm doing exceptionally well. Just got back from Texas. Uh, didn't get hit by the hurricane, of course, but I had a good time down there. Down in Texas. We're going to cover that in a second. But uh, for those who don't know, Derek DeBras, the gun lawyer, the gun lawyer, you got, you've had a YouTube presence now for what, years and years and years? Uh, before I had a beard. Before you had a beard. <laughs> so if you've seen his beard, and you will sooner or later, this will be on video. But uh, uh, before the beard, you had a YouTube presence where you've taken all sorts of gun questions, gun topics, and uh, we're sort of taking that to the next level here. Yeah. I think uh, what we want to do is just make sure that we're educating our community and making sure that they're aware of what's going on out in society and politics and in the training industry and the legal industry, everything guns and everything that touches guns. Guns is so heavily re- regulated in our society. It's important we have a holistic understanding of that from multiple uh, facets. Yeah. And, you know, for if it seems like for a hundred years, it was just like this undiscussed, the U- U.S. Supreme Court didn't do much with it. A hundred years might be an exaggeration, but lately, you know, the last uh, 20 years or 15, 20 years, it's, it's been a hotbed topic of uh, constitutional right, constitutional right to carry. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has hit this a few times now in some major, major cases. So uh, these are, you know, probably in your practice, too, I get a lot of questions, just generalized questions about guns and what people can do. And most important, what they cannot do to you, what the, what the, right. what the government can't take away. That's right. And uh, I think now more than ever, people have uh, a keen interest in this stuff. So that's the idea of the podcast. And, you know, it's not completely one-sided here. You can interact a little bit. Um, so it, it, things to come. You know, there's a website being built. You know, we didn't build Rome in a day. We're not going to build the munitions podcast in a day. So there, things are coming. And uh, that means there's a website that is under construction with a domain name, and you will soon be directed there for all your questions and information and probably some other resources. Um, but for now, uh, Derek, you, they can reach you at info at munitionsgroup.com. That's right. If they send us questions, we'll, we'll drop it into the ammo can, as we call it, and uh, it'll be put in the queue. And hopefully we'll get around to answering it at some point in time for them. Yeah, we'll talk about the ammo can in a bit. Um, so uh, if you do have questions, that's where they'll go. And if, trust me, I'll, I'll fill you in here shortly on what that's all about. But uh, beyond that, if you have a topic that you're concerned about, not just a question, not just like, yeah, can I do this or can they do that or what's the deal with this? If you want, if you got a bigger, broader topic or maybe even you want to be a guest and you think you got the chops to hang at the table here with the Munitions Podcast, boys, uh, you know, send Derek an email for now, and then very soon there'll be a domain with a website, and it'll be interactive. I promise. Trust me, I'm a lawyer. You can believe everything. You can believe everything. Not only that, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, the most virtuous type of lawyer there is. Um, so, look, Texas. What what goes better than Texas and guns? Uh, big tax at the Texas State Fair. I actually made an appearance there. You were at the Texas State Fair. Right? What for the popcorn? Yeah, no, actually, for the corn dogs, the corny dogs, as they call them. You ever seen Big Tex, by the way? I have not. He goes, howdy, folks, and waves his hand. It's just, he caught on fire in 2012. It was something horrific. Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 But we went there as, a, it was actually a side attraction. My wife and I love state fairs, and uh, it just so happened it was opening day, but we were down there for the Second Amendment's uh, annual conference. I was invited to the legal scholars uh, seminar that was at the conference. All right, so we got a, we got a, uh, a firearms, regulatory, all things gun lawyer Went to Texas for a state fair, and there happened to be a Second Amendment conference. Yeah, well, or was it the other? It way was around? the inverted. Right? Right. <laughs> it was the other way around. Other way around. Yeah. So you know that that's probably a great jumping off point for the substance of the day. So what people start to realize what's going on here. You get a little intro, sort of fun, 
then you're going to get the the real topics, the stuff we're going to cover. And it's not going to be uh, just bubble gum and 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 candy here. It's going to be uh, good stuff we're going to cover. And then at the end, you're going to get a little ammo can and some uh, what's up next. So uh, we're sort of into it. Um, I, I know. See, the secret is Derek's already told me what was covered down there, so I already know. <laughs> so this is if you think that this might be canned ammo canned. It sort of is, but not really. Uh, you, what was the big topic of the day down in Texas? Uh, the biggest thing was the Bruin case, U.S. Supreme Court case, and um, just a quick s- a synopsis of that case. It, well, let me stop you there before you – because when you texted me – now, you texted me earlier, and you said the Bruin case, and I was like, what the heck's the Bruin case? Because I knew it as a New York gun club case. That's right. And what's interesting, there's two New York gun club cases, one that didn't make it and then the other one that did. The one that started to make it and then uh, was later uh, thrown out or dismissed because uh, it was moot or whatever it was. And then this other New York gun club case uh, is also, it, it just, it, everything's confusing. So when you said Bruin, I had to check. But as it turns out, that's the best way to call it. Uh, yeah, we just the, refer to it as the Bruin case, B-R-U-E-N. Um, I actually filed an amicus brief in that. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a friend of the court brief. Um, you know, not a primary brief, but I was invited to assist some professors in filing that brief. Uh, I didn't do most any of the actual academic work, but I was happy to assist in that and give my uh, feedback where they asked. So what he's talking about, and look, I, I, anybody who checks out my other podcast, you, you'll know, I like to make things simple. So I speak both languages. And it, somebody goes to the U.S. Supreme Court because they're challenging a law. And th- we filed these briefs. And I remember before law school, I had no idea what the hell a brief was. But a brief is basically a long written essay, a long written report about what the law is and what you are asking a court to do with the law. So a brief is fancy lawyer talk for really long book report. That's right. And, yeah. and, and you're, an amicus brief is like, you're not a party to the case. In other words, right. you're not suing. You're not getting sued. You're not charged with a crime and challenging it. Um, and you're not on the, you don't right. work for the guy. You are chiming in as a true friend of the court, meaning you, you are going to offer your opinion on it and your research on it, taking right. one of the sides. And a certain issue, a, cer- a narrow, a specific narrow issue within the case. And, and you might get in, in a, say, a abortion case a bunch of pro-lifers on one side and a bunch of uh, um, pro-choicers on the other filing amicus briefs. And in a gun case, same kind of thing. You might have the NRA filing something. You might have like the We Hate Guns Forever groups filing something. I'm not in that group. but I've I've had a Sixth Circuit case where I think it was Moms Demand Action or somebody. What was it called? Moms Demand Action or or Every Town for Gun Safety, I think, was involved. And they filed an amicus brief in the Sixth Circuit case, I argued. I got to tell you. I mean, we're going to go sideways here, but that's what I do. It just is uh, the 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 logic, uh, the notion of this that you can somehow legislate away because you don't like them guns and wipe them off the face of the planet to solve whatever problem you think guns might uh, be causing uh, is so preposterous. But anyway, what, what, well, well I mean, it's very, hey, it's very relevant though, Steve. I mean, look, uh, that's what Bruin talked about. I mean, it, it completely changed the landscape even further. But I think we need to take a step back before we really get into the nitty gritty, if I may, yeah, and let's give do some it. context. So we have to go back to the year I graduated law school. We have to talk about um, D.C. versus Heller. If, if anybody has been paying attention to uh, the legal world and guns, Heller is the paramount case. It is the case that established that the Second Amendment was not at what we call collective rights, not a right guaranteed to the National Guard or the militia. Right. It was a right of the individual. Right. It was a right to Steve Palmer to be able to keep and bear an arm. That's what Heller stood for. I've actually met Dick Heller, by the way. He signed the brief and it's hanging in my office. Uh, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So that's the Heller case. A couple years later, we had the Otis McDonald case out of Chicago. 
And that was where they invoked, I believe it was the 14th Amendment. It's been a while since I've read it, so forgive me, scholars out there, if I'm wrong on that. But the uh, long and short of it was it was incorporated into the states, meaning now the states have to abide by that same principle, that same premise. Yep. So the states can't overly regulate it. But it, it left open a question that most constitutional scholars know, and that's what we call the standard of review. You know, how when we look at a gun law in New York, like in the Bruin case, how do we know if it's constitutional or not? And traditionally, the Supreme Court would apply what we call a balancing test. You know, does the individual right outweigh the need of the government to regulate this certain area, right? But what's interesting, if you go back to Heller, Scalia was very clear, we don't interest balance when it comes to the Second Amendment. I argued that in the Stimmel case in the Sixth Circuit. I got a dissent, uh, but I still lost. But I was proud to get the dissent. But I was right. And Bruin actually says I was right. And what Bruin basically says is, no, we look to the historical precedent. We look to see what his, historically when the Second Amendment was ratified, you know, what what did the founders intend? So we have to look to history. We don't do this interbalancing test. In fact, this week, uh, New York, I think it was up in Syracuse, there was a judge that threw out the state regulation on getting a gun license. Things like you had to present to the, the government uh, three years of social media history, all this other nonsense. Yep. And they said, look, under Bruin, it doesn't fly. I think Massachusetts had something happen this week, too. And so did Texas. Right. And they're throwing this stuff out. It's just, it's coming. So let me get some backdrop to this. So what, what you're talking about is this. No, so I, and this is, if you don't understand this, don't worry, because this is about a, the, getting this concept was very difficult for me, even in law school, when I first had to figure this out. So we have this thing called the United States Constitution. The first 10 amendments we call the Bill of Rights. And in that Bill of Rights, we have all sorts of things that basically say what the government can't do. Um, they can't do this to you. They can't stop you from doing this either. And among those rights is something called the Second Amendment. But let's shift gears for a second. Let's say it's the First Amendment. Um, and say that uh, a state of Ohio passes a law that says, uh, we are not allowed to have the munitions podcast in Columbus, Ohio, uh, just because. So, and we're going to turn around and we're going to say, well, that law violates my First Amendment rights. Well, the first question is, do we as Ohioans enjoy a United States constitutional First Amendment right. And basically, all these rights now have been applied to the states. It's not always been so clear that that was the case, but they all have now. And it funnels right through this, the 14th Amendment, which is has this due process clause. And there's something called substantive due process. It, it, that's too confusing. Just understand this. When you were talking about, first, can the federal government stop me from making the, having this podcast? That's an easy one because it's a federal constitution. But what about the Ohio government? Can they stop me from having this podcast because we're talking about a federal right, not the state of Ohio's right? Well, uh, long ago, we basically concluded that, yes, the, the First Amendment applies and it prohibits Ohio, just like it would prohibit the U.S. government from impinging upon or passing a law that would stop us from having freedom of speech. The same is true with guns, and that's that McDonald case. That's right. And then you have to decide, all right, well, how do we know it violates the First Amendment to say we can't have this podcast? And there's basically three, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, but that's okay. There's basically three ways to look at it. The first way is like, does Ohio have any halfway decent reason to do it? Uh, the second standard would be, well, maybe they have a good reason, but it really, it's got to be only... Uh, addressing that reason and not any other reason. And then you got the most strict standard, which is something called strict scrutiny, which is a legal term that is meaningless because nobody knows what the hell it means. <laughs> but it means you have to look only, only on rare occasions will it be okay. And, you know, in the first, in the Second Amendment context, everybody was debating, as you're saying, like, what's it going to be? Yeah. Is it the middle road, which is uh, what probably happened in your Stemmel case? Or is it going to be strict scrutiny, which is not what happened at all? 
the U.S. Supreme Court said, at least with the Second Amendment, it's something totally different. We're going to look at the history, text, and tradition and see how this was treated long ago. What was interesting in the Sixth Circuit is Justice Boggs, in a, in a previous case, actually had ruled that the Second Amendment, and he did a very, very good, thorough analysis, said the strict scrutiny applied. He was wrong. Yeah. You know, at the time I was excited. I'm like, well, if we have to take a standard review, I'm going to take that one, of course. Yep. And he gave me my dissent in the Stimmel case, right? When we argued that the Lautenberg Amendment, the, the prohibition against domestic violence, from, the misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence from having guns, we argued that was unconstitutional. Because if you look at it historically, like, you know, we didn't bar people convicted of misdemeanors from having firearms. And I argued that there is no scrutiny. We don't want to apply it because that's what Scalia said. Look, we just apply historical precedent. We look at it from a historical perspective. And that's what Bruin held. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's funny because I tried to go up to on my uh, firearms while intoxicated case. And I actually went up to, I tried to get the U.S. Supreme Court to look at it while Bruin uh, was still, was just getting into the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, foolishly, I guess, I was arguing, all right, I get it. I see where the wind's blowing on this stuff. And it's not going to be the history text and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, history text analysis. It's going to be either intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. And I said, well, here's the deal. Heller says, in your home, that's the that's the core of that right. So anything in the home should be strict scrutiny, and anything outside the home, do what you will. I don't care. Call it, call it whatever. Intermediate scrutiny if you want. But at least in the home, we know it's strict. Well, they didn't take my case, and now I know why, which is another segue right here for you to talk about Bruin, because what they did in Bruin was they, they, they adopted nothing of what I was arguing at all, yeah. something far better. Yeah, I mean, it's it just they, they got they didn't even go into the interest balancing, which they shouldn't. You know, it's a historical analysis. And our office has several cases right now we're getting ready to file. Um, I, had, I had an argument in Toledo recently where the Bruin case was very relevant, actually Tuesday. And I think we got a kind ear from one of the judges. And we had a case we're getting ready to file in the Ninth Circuit, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. You know, this changes the whole landscape of how we look at gun rights, Steve. Well, it completely let's, changes it. Let's dig into it a little bit because the, the standard is basically you're going to look at the history uh, in, in, in the text of the Constitution. So you're going to go back in time and say, all right, let's do this sort of evaluation of how these kind of laws or, or what this right meant and, and whether it makes sense to, uh, to, to find it a, an unconstitutional law or a constitutional law based on the history and the text. Text, history, and tradition, and I believe tradition, is what it said. Yeah. yeah, text, history, and tradition of and pre- how this and precedent, was And precedent. And, and, you know, what's interesting is, and just to, to, I like to make extreme examples, but what's fascinating to me is when you go back all the way to Roe v. Wade, for instance, and the court strained itself, overly strained itself. You could almost see the, the, disingenuous oozing out of the decision when they, when they went all the way back and said, well, you know, historically abortion has been okay. Um, they actually did a similar type of analysis uh, way back when, when they first decided Roe. Um, so it's, it's not like this, this approach is unprecedented. Um, it, it's been used basically all, every time somebody says, well, the founders would have, could have, should have, or, you know, this is how it would have been treated. Uh, this is, this is it. And then you're going to find people on both sides to say, well, the founders had nothing to do with they, 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 they didn't treat machine guns this way. They didn't even have machine guns. But that's not quite what Bruin is saying. Bruin is saying something different. And uh, tell us what they what the what the assessment from the bigwigs down there. Yeah, was. yeah. And I, I'm not an expert on this case. You know, I haven't had a chance to really dive into it more than a couple of times. But essentially, we looked at the, like you said, the history, the text, the, the uh, tradition. Uh, of what the founders intended at the time that the Second Amendment was was ratified. Now, what what uh, Thomas said in the decision 
was we can look to analogies, but it's not, you know, it's not a, sometimes it's putting a square peg through a round hole. It's not always going to be perfect. This is not a perfect analysis. So, you know, they, this could theoretically be used in favor of regulation too. Yeah. Um, there was one argument that was made that I think it was in Massachusetts that if somebody was deemed to be a threat to the community, that for them to have a gun, they had to get a bond. And they used that argument that, you know, regulation on, on carrying firearms is fine and, and all this, but it wasn't the rule. It was the exception to the rule, right? The rule was you could carry. And the exception was if you were a violent person, determined to be a violent person, then they could issue the bond on you. All right. Well, what about Big Whiskey? Big Whiskey. Yeah, that was the town in uh, The Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. Yeah, you're, you're, this, so, is, this is beyond me. <laughs> no, it's not. So it, you, you'll get it in a second. So the town of Big Whiskey. Everybody went into Big Whiskey, had to go check their firearm at the sheriff's office. And uh, Big Whiskey's not a real town. I know it wasn't, but th- I, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming. I, 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 look, I know a lot of history. I don't know this for sure. But I would presume that there were probably Western towns that that was I the situation. I think Tombstone had a, a, a law like that. Yeah, so there's a law like that. So in history and in context and looking at it analytically, there were towns, perhaps in the West, that said, look, gun violence is insane. We got Wild Bill Hickok. You got uh, Billy the Kid. You got uh, old Annie Oakley or whoever or uh, running around shooting each other. So we're just going to make everybody check their guns at the door when they come into town. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court existed in the 1800s. Sure. Um, and it didn't, nobody challenged that law. Now, constitutional constitutional review is a lot different back then, but uh, or judicial re- review is a lot different. But you can, you can almost come up, like, to make your point that, you know, it may not always go well for the gun advocates. Right. You have to look at everything. Right? In my opinion, I, hopefully I'm not using this, this term out of place, but it's a tally of the circumstances. You have to look at everything, look at the analogies, see what's most closely resembles it, and ultimately the judges have to make a decision. Uh, at the end of the day, what we have here is a new landscape in the Second Amendment litigation, and it's going to be very, very in- intently focused on history. So I'm going to be out the, down at the stacks at the Ohio History Center and at all the universities looking at these books and trying to make these arguments from a historical standpoint rather than this societal sociology argument that, you know, the government's interest doesn't outweigh the civil liberty. That's gone, right? It's yeah. all based on history now. So it changes what you and I do now regarding gun laws as a practi- practicing attorney, right? Yeah. We have to approach these cases very differently. Yeah. In my Weber case that I argued in the Ohio Supreme Court, the dissenting judge uh, basically wanted this. He wanted a history, text, and tradition analysis and, and would have upheld the law or would have uh, uh, struck down a law um, that says you can't have a gun when you're intoxicated, even in your own home. Uh, and I wonder now if I get another case like that, if it might go a different way. It yeah. would almost have to uh, because the Ohio Supreme Court analysis was an intermediate scrutiny analysis and then ain't going to get it. No, not under Bruin. I mean, in, in Ohio, remember, I, I, I'm going to stretch my brain here. Probably going to get it wrong. Article 1, Section 3, I believe, is our, our Second Amendment version. I could get the citation wrong. And it's, I think, written in a much more favorable way to the individual gun rights. So yeah. it begs the question. And then it also begs the question of permitless carry. Is the mode of carry protected under the Second Amendment now? Does, and if it is if it is protected, does that mean... You know, can nonviolent felons permanently carry? Are they actually restri- can they be restricted from having firearms? All these questions that are all kind up in the air. Yeah, and you know, if you if you skim through Bruin, it, don't, it won't take long for those who aren't used to reading legal decisions. Usually, at the at the beginning of a big, long, complicated case like that, they have something called head notes um, or like a summary at the beginning, uh, a syllabus maybe. 
something that basically gives you a quick little outline of what it's what they're really saying. I wouldn't rely on that for anything academic, but for for purposes of understanding the quick and dirty of a case, that's not a bad place to start. And you know, they 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 did a little bit of historical assessment of uh, what did the founders mean? I mean, did they really mean that we couldn't walk around that, or, or maybe to flip it around? Did we did it in, did it envision? Did the founders envision Steve Palmer in 1780, 1790, walking around town with a gun on my belt? or walking around town with a gun in my vest, or even in my sock. Um, and would they ha- would they have had a problem with that? Sure. Um, and, it, you know, it's not so, the answer is not so obvious, uh, because then you have to ask the next question, which is, what would they have really cared if, if, if a local law dog said you can't? And, you know, these are, you're right, it's a whole new landscape that as I'm sitting here coming up with these scenarios in my head, it's not going to be so clear and obvious how this stuff unravels. Um, you know, what if I have a felony? What if I, what, what if you're a stimmel case now, or if you've got a domestic violence conviction, you're automatically excluded. I mean, all this has turned on its ear and, and should get uh, reviewed again. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, the stimmel case is interesting because it sounds horrible, domestic violent offenders having guns, but it's a misdemeanor, Steve. You know, no other civil liberties restricted. And Thomas said that in a case in 2018, he he actually, the first time he spoke in years, it was on a gun case. He said, he said to the government counsel, tell me what other civil liberties, whatever civil right is restricted by a misdemeanor conviction. Only guns. Only yeah. guns. Only guns. And that's how I opened my oral argument in the Sixth Circuit. I opened it with that statement. And it's, so if people look at this, we've, it, some of this is what I'll call, I'm making it up as I go, I'll call it social conditioning. We have been socially conditioned to accept that if you have a domestic violence case, you can't have a gun, as if that's just how it should be. But, you know, it, it was in my lifetime, and I'm not too old to remember when that occurred. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a bigger splash than people might think. You know, you have a misdemeanor conviction. And not only that, folks, it's a mis- domestic violence is a misdemeanor. You're stuck with it. If it's on your record in Ohio, you ain't getting that sealed from your record. So it is there. It is there forever, along with the gun exclusion right. that you're talking about. So it's um, And it can't be fixed in Ohio. Well, it can be, but it's not... It can't be fixed very easily. There's no straightforward way to fix it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's always exceptions in the weeds or in the in the margins. But if you come to me as a potential client and say, "I got a domestic violence case like 15 years ago. It was stupid. I was living with my girlfriend. We threw a can of soup at each other, and right. I missed her. But it was a I, I pled guilty because I didn't have a lawyer, and I got a domestic violence, and now I'm 40, and uh, I want to go hunt. Can I get my record sealed? And I'm going to look at him and say, Yeah, probably not.'" Um, now again, we can get creative and if you have that kind of problem, we might be able to help, but it's not easy. No, it's expensive too. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. Yeah. So, and I will say I I have, I have been able to get people their gun rights back convicted of those, those types of crimes multiple times in Ohio, but it's expensive and it's a, it's a shot in the dark. It's an exception, not the rule. That's that's right. That's right. Now, if you come to me and you've got a, here's what's ironic. If you come to me and you've been convicted of a certain kind of burglary, Say an F four burglary, it's easy. And and you say I want to get my gun, I want to seal my record and get my gun rights back. I'm going to say, yeah, we'll just go seal your record, go or get a restoration. Garrett. Yeah, no, yeah. Go, go talk to Garrett, get a restoration, or we'll just seal your record because there's an F four burglary that is sealable, but domestic violence different. It's a misdemeanor. Yeah, it it, it doesn't yeah. make any and sense, it, and it doesn't apply for restoration. I'm just going to throw this out there to the audience. You're not going to understand it, but you you can't get a restoration for a misdemeanor because under U.S. Supreme Court case law. 
you can't restore rights that weren't lost. And when we talk about gun rights, we're talking about your right to hold office, serve in a jury and vote. But because in Ohio, you don't lose those rights, you can't get them restored. Yeah. And this is the lunacy of the law. This is what happens when, I, I, look, you're going to, anybody who listens to anything else I talk about down here, they're, they're going to know that I hate the government. And what, what happens is the government starts writing laws to address a political agenda. And when you do that, it creates this hodgepodge uh, list of unintended consequences. And this is one yeah. of them. Well, that's a good uh, segue, I think, to our, our second topic, Steve. You think it's a good time maybe to roll into yeah, number so two? Let's, let's talk about it. So activist ATF was the other topic at the conference, and we've been dealing with this in our office quite a bit. We have a pretty robust uh, ATF regulatory compliance practice. So the way it works out of the Gun Control Act, actually out of the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, if I remember correctly, we sort of licensed the ability to manufacture, sell, and, and transmit guns for profit, you know, things like that. And that's, that kind of got you know, wrapped up into the 1968 Gun Control Act. And so what we have today is a very robust system of licensing, registration, record keeping, uh, if you wanted to sell firearms for business. You used to be able to, you know, buy guns through the mail, go out to your hardware store and get ammunition. Sears. And it's just, yeah, Sears Roebuck catalog, deliver a Thompson submachine gun to your front door. Right? So here's here's what he's talking about. We have, and again, this took me forever. And I'm not even sure I have my head around it yet, academically or logically. We have something out there called administrative agencies, like EPA. And they're always abbreviated, ATF. Right. Um, and they sit at the sole discretion of the president, of the executive branch of government. Right. And they can only, in theory, do things. Uh, they only have power that is delegated to them. The Chevron case. Yeah, Chevron. Which and, is up up for debate. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah the, they may go too far on that one and then end up losing it all, which is good. I, for me, that would be the best thing for the country. But yeah. um, in theory, the, the administrative agencies only have a certain amount of power. But what's happened is like... As soon as you let, as soon as you give bureaucrats power, it runs amok. So ATF has got this like layers and layers and layers of regulations. I can't even read them. They're so confusing. And it governs who can buy a gun, how you have to buy a gun, where you can buy a gun. How um, old you have to be to buy a gun, yeah. which a Texas, a, gun? a Texas judge just threw that out under Bruin, right? Yeah. The 21-year age restriction. Yep. I, I think that's the correct decision. So that's what's interesting. So the ATF creates a regulation. I'm not talking about Congress sitting down and saying, "Hearee, hearee, let's vote on a law." They define, they redefined what how a firearm is defined this year yes. under executive order. So understand what he's saying. Congress, so your senators and your representatives, did not vote and say, "We hereby pass a law." The president said, "All right, ATF, I want you to define what a gun is this way," and then they just write a rule right. that says that's what it is. So, so, so look at it. So, since Biden took office, things have completely changed. The old playbook for years out the window, out the window. I've been practicing law going on 14 years now, Steve. In my entire career up until this year, I had one what we call revocation hearing, meaning a gun dealer was going to lose their license. I actually attended one hearing. Um, actually, didn't get to a decision because the guy died before the decision came out. But this year alone, we've had like four. It's been up. I think NSSF uh, is estimating something like 500%. What is NSSF? The National Shooting Sports Foundation. It is the the lobbying arm of the the firearms industry. It's a very good organization. I encourage you all to donate money and all that. It's just a great organization. But they do a lot of the um, statistical analysis and things like that as well. And I think they've estimated something like 500%. It's insane. I mean, we had a revocation where a guy got popped on a single clerical error. 
It's not, and, and to revoke somebody's license, it has to be willful. It has to be intentional with purpose, right? They're revoking these people based on paper paperwork errors. Yeah, that's it. Like we had, we had one this week where there was nineteen forty four seventy threes, which is the background check document that just had like check boxes not marked. How is that willful? Right, it's, it's crazy. Now uh, let me throw another one at you. Like I'm holding up. You can't see because we're not on video yet. That's my chair squeaking. But I'm holding up this hunk of metal. Like there is something I can do to turn this hunk of metal into a gun. It's not going to be able to shoot, but I can make this a regulated gun under yeah. the ATF regulations. I mean, am I right about that? Uh, if you tell me you're going to today make that into a suppressor and that you're intending it to be a suppressor, it is now a suppressor. And what if I what if I give it a number? What if I I mean if I if I if I put in a book if I put a number on it and then put it in a book. Well, if it's a firearm, ATF would under the under the regulations consider it a firearm. Then that would be proper. If you're what he means by book, by the way, if you're a dealer or a manufacturer, you have to keep records. It's called an acquisition and dispositions book. So when you acquire a firearm, it's got to be put in the book within a certain amount of time. Yeah, but don't think firearm in the sense of it'll actually if you pull a trigger, it'll shoot. It, because things become firearms before they get there. Even I mean, it can be a piece of a firearm sure. that becomes a firearm. And it's still got to be regulated as if it actually is a gun that shoots. So the, the definitional structure is turned on its ear. So when, when you, Derek, when you hear firearm in the context of this regulatory scheme, you're not thinking what our listeners are thinking. No. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, uh, you know, it's got to meet a certain stage of manufacturing and production where it meets that definition. Where So it, it, it basically would look like a hunk of metal to most people with some holes drilled out in it. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. But it's actually considered, quote, firearm. Under ATF, under the Gun Control Act of 1968, it could be defined as a firearm. And so now think about this. If you were to do something with that that firearm that can't really shoot, doesn't really look like a complete gun, and in fact, to the rest of us, like you said, look like a hunk of metal with holes in it. If you did something wrong with that, like took it home and worked on it or uh, maybe sold it or you just think, hey, here's a hunk of metal here. You take this, Derek, um, without keeping records or doing it correctly it's it's not only a firearm like you can get in trouble for that well it depends on who's doing it and what they're doing you know uh, as individual citizens we absolutely can make our own firearms that's clear that's still clear we can make our own guns correct what we cannot do is manufacture our own guns or sell our own guns uh for essentially business purposes for profit that's i mean if i want to sell it to you and say here you take this you give me some money for it or if i if I, well, actually this, this is another thing that Biden might want to change. Well, it's another topic, but, uh, if I, uh, if I transfer it, we'll say well, in, incorrectly. Well, I mean, it depends on state law as well, but if you're just giving it to me as a gift, it's clearly not unlawful. If you're doing it for a business and you're not licensed, that's where it gets really, really, that's where it gets illegal. Okay. Right. You, you if you're in, want to be in the business of selling guns, you have to be licensed under federal law. You have to be licensed so long and to complicate things. So long as the, the guns you're selling, transacting, have touched or affected interstate commerce. Um, and I don't want to complicate yeah, things. Let's but just say most have. <laughs> must have, right? Yeah, most have done yeah, that. So. Most, most have, except, unless it's a high point and you're in Ohio. But uh, aside from that. Um, so you've got, uh, back, to, back to the point of ATF here, mm -hmm. is that they've got almost this plenary or unlimited power to modify and redefine or maybe even just reinterpret what they've already written right? to change well, how it, things get enforced. Look, it gets scarier than that. Let's get out of the licensing world and, and, you know, well, let's stay in it, but let's talk about a different aspect of it. And then we can get out and talk about TSA for a minute as well. But 
Um, something called the Zero Zero Tolerance Directive came out. It's on the White House's website. There's a list of what we call five deadly sins in the industry, right? There's things that if a dealer manufacturer does, no questions asked of whether or not it's willful. They're not going to ask. You need to revoke them. That's the DOJ policy. And when we had a revocation hearing recently and we started asking ATF about that, they refused to answer about zero tolerance. They will not discuss it. Why? Why won't you talk about the policy that directs your behavior and actions when you try to revoke somebody's license? Because, and, and again, folks, what he's saying is this. If you made a mistake and you didn't do it on purpose, it's just clerical, or you just screwed up, or you just maybe you were half asleep that day and you didn't do something right. Derek is saying they are enforcing regulatory or taking regulatory enforcement action against people uh, when they didn't do something with any intent whatsoever to break the rules. That's right. That's right. And we asked the ATF uh, uh, investigator what was the definition of willful. She couldn't answer. She said, well, it's something like intent, but, you know, I really don't know. That was like her answer. Oh, and she's enforcing God. these regulations, Steve. This is insane. So, you know, when I try criminal cases, I always, one of the analogies I use when I was a kid, it's always rung true with me. It's like when kids fight or like, like if I hit you or something and we're eight, it's like when you go tell, when you go tell the teacher, it's like, he did that on purpose. You did it on purpose. You know, it's like, it, it means something even to our, like, in, it, it, like our basic humanity recognizes right. that if you did it by mistake or you didn't really mean to do it, right. there's something different about that. It's, it's, it, look, it, it, everybody knows though. This is, this is the elephant in the room. Everybody knows it's all political. It is 100% political. They are trying to destroy the industry. That's it. There's no other reason for this. All right. So let's carry this out. Cause you, you, you brought up, it's like the, the, what'd you say? The politicized, not politicizing. What'd the you call activist it? ATF, the activist ATF, meaning they become activists for a anti-gun cause. Yeah. And it's a they're, they're government agents. There's there's an ATF for good people. And and they're caught in the middle in my opinion. And they're the good people are leaving. And that's what's scary. Same thing at DOJ. The good people are leaving. And yep. that's what's scary. And it's leaving the activists in, in the positions of power. This this in in again not to not to go not to paint it with too broad a brush, but these are the functional equivalents then of the brown shirts. So if the good agents are leaving, the ones that really want to do their job and make sure that good people don't be get fair and reasonable, fair, right? and you know the industry and 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 ATF have, has always had a symbiotic relationship. We understood the need for public safety, and they understood the need for the industry under the Second Amendment, and it's just becoming very lopsided now. Now, if a political and, party, go ahead. One last thing: it's very short-sighted on the Biden's administration. Because prior to, if, let's say, a dealer made a mistake, they would call ATF, how do I fix it? How do I protect society to make sure this doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm. Do you think they're going to reach out to ATF now? No. Why? Because they're going to lose their license and their, their livelihood. Such a great point. It, it, you know what? I was at a high school football game last weekend down at uh, Logan Elm in Circleville. And I love high school football, especially small town high school football like that. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of where I went to Big Walnut. And everybody who, watch it, watch football tomorrow on Saturday. Watch what the wide receiver does. He lines up, and it's really difficult when you're all the way out on the flank to tell if you're lined up on the line of scrimmage or not on the line of scrimmage. What's he always do? He looks to the ref and, and nods and says, am I on the line of scrimmage? And the ref tells him. Now, the ref could just wait and watch and say, ah, 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 gotcha, right. and throw the flag. But you know, for the last 50 years or 100 years of football, it's been that understood agreement that, look, I'm not trying to break the rules. It's really difficult for me to follow this rule way out here. It really has nothing to do with the bigger right. picture of what's going to happen in this play if I'm a foot or six inches over this line. Can you just help me out? And it's always been that way. And now what's happened is the current administration has said, you know what, we're going to turn those refs into enforcers. 
those refs are going to throw that flag every single time. Right. And uh, now what you're saying is is always what happens when you get the law of unintended consequences. It's a, chill, it's a chilling effect. It's going to benefit the crooks. Right. It's going to send it's the crooks right, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, you're going to put good people out of business. It's going to cost families their jobs, livelihoods. It's going to make it more difficult for people who need to protect themselves and their family from accessing firearms as well. And for the honest people to do business. That's exactly right. You know, it's like if you're if you're a legit guy trying to keep up with all this stuff and do it right, and now you don't have a sounding board with the ATF to say, all right, what does Tech Branch say about this? Or yeah. what is so and so? You're not going to go this? and talk to him about it. No. No. You're not going to. It's going to cause more problems. But maybe that's what they want. They want more problems, so they have more revocations, and eventually just put them all out of business. Yeah, and it you you can put people out of legitimate business, but you're never going to put the industry out of business. I think it's highly unlikely. Yeah, it'll be just black market business. Yeah, and that that's going to be the uh, the consequence. But this is what happens in every regulatory agency when the executive branch uses an, or uh, rules it with an agenda. So you've seen it with the EPA. Yeah, you've seen it with ATF. It's sad. Um, immigration. You've seen it both ways. Um, and, and ultimately, it becomes so corrupt and untrustworthy that we, the people can't trust what the government is doing anymore. And then, and then the, the, the real extreme people come out of the woodwork, right? right. They're, they're like, well, that's why we need guns in the first place. So it's a, like, I'm not, I'm not taking, I'm not taking a position against them, but the regulatory powers right now are, and what they're doing is creating them. No, I, I don't disagree. I always had a great, I still have a great working relationship with ATF because there's still really good people there. Um, I just have a concern about the leadership at the very, very top. That's where this is all coming from. It's the director, right? It's an orchestra telling the fiddles to play or the violins yeah. to play the wrong song. Yeah, uh, and and that's where it's going. And, so. and, and look, I understand the the you know the the lower level uh, personnel's position. They don't want to lose their job. They got to support their families. I get it. It's their job. It's their career. Puts them in a really bad spot, and I I just I feel bad for them. And eventually you weed out the good people. This happens in, I see it happen in police forces too. You weed out the good people and you get the hall monitors. Yeah. You get, you get the little ticky tacks uh, yeah. that come in and just want to, uh, want to nitpick at you. I had a TSA case this way. Just let me touch on TSA and how this has also been interesting. Historically, if you brought a gun through TSA, right. And your carry, your carry on, you'd miss your plane. Probably you get charged with a, in, in Columbus and M2 aggravated trespass. You go to court with Steve Palmer or Derek DeBras and we go talk to the prosecutor. They say, all right, he has no criminal record, your client. So we'll go ahead and dismiss the case. You'll forfeit the gun and pay a fine, maybe a little bit of community service, and then you can expunge the record later on, right? I think that's a fair result. Would you agree? Yep. I went in. I had three in one week, believe it or not, this year. And the prosecutor told me this. It was a local prosecutor. It was the arraignment prosecutor. And what he told me was TSA has been telling prosecutors that, hey, don't dismiss these cases. So the prosecutor said, I'll give your gun back, but you got to plead to the charge. Now, why? Because they want that damn statistic up. They want the numbers. They want the numbers. Now, I did hear from a colleague of ours recently that he was able to get it dismissed again. So I know it can happen still, but as you know, why? Where's this coming from? Well, and there, there's even more to it. What's interesting about that is I've always said, um, if you want to, if you want to uh, lower the crime rate, it's really easy. You can do it in two ways. You can declare martial law and just put machine guns and jackboots on the ground on the street and anybody who even jaywalks you just shoot them right it'll stop it in its tracks literally and deterrently it'll it'll be done that's one way the other way is you just quit enforcing crime because then there's no statistics to support the crime so if you're not going to i could eliminate jaywalking simply by telling every police in the city not to enforce jaywalking 
Now, you can do the same thing in reverse. If I want gun crimes to go up because I have an agenda that will be justified if gun crimes are up, well, then I will just tell ATF, I want gun convictions. Go get these paperwork people. I don't care what you do. I want them yeah. in the books, and I want federal pleas. What made me so mad about the TSA issue, and Steve, I think you might have worked with me on one of those cases, was the fact that they gave the gun back. Now, it seems counterintuitive for me to say that, but think about it this way. You ha- are such hypocrites that for the last 10 years, it was all about keeping guns on the street. Now, I didn't agree that that would actually help public safety, but I could at least respect the position. Yep. And now you're coming back and say it's okay to have the gun because we want the conviction. What hypocrisy is that? I just did one for somebody, very cl- son of a very close friend. And uh, one of the things he was worried about his gun because he had a custom-made grip or something. I mean, sure. it was a nice gun. And he has a licensed carry concealed handgun and just screwed up. was in a hurry, like everybody else who does this. Sure. In a hurry, went to the airport there. And lo and behold, it's in his, it's in his uh, travel bag. And uh, he, had to, he had to plea, but he has gun back. And it's like, it's so absurd. It's insane. I was like, keep the gun and dismiss the case. It's insane that you give the gun back when for the last 10 years you said, we need to destroy the gun because they're bad. Well, you don't really think they're bad if you're letting them have the gun. This is all politics. It's all bullshit. It is all BS. It is all political nonsense to support a bigger agenda. And this is where people come out of the woodwork and say, exactly, this is exactly why we need to be able to defend ourselves against the government because these people are abusing power. And I think the, the most insightful thing you said today was that there used to be this symbiotic relationship between ATF and the people who do business in that world. And it worked. It just worked. It did. It, it was like, a, you know, it's like the good guys were trying to do it right. And the bad guys, uh, they're always going to be bad guys. Yeah. But, but now you're creating a scheme where the good guys, it's impossible for them to do it right. So they're going to quit. You're going to be only left with the bad yeah. guys. And they, I, I don't even know if they've even thought of that at the DOJ. I don't yeah. think they care. They don't care because, you know, po- political agendas, these kind of political moves, they're never judged based on uh, the, the, the ultimate outcome because that's usually like 10 years down the road. They're only judged based on their their uh, purported intent. Yeah. So we're going to solve crime. So yeah. we're going to be tough on guns. Well, whether it works or not, it's uh, it's meaningless. We're on it. We're doing what we can. You know, if anybody's any questions, they can always reach out to our office or your office, and we're happy to help guide them through that process. But the unfortunate thing too, I I want to end end this discussion with this is that it's expensive. If you have a license and you're getting revoked, it's expensive depending on the firm you hire. And we have between all the lawyers in our office, something like 50 years of experience, but it'll cost you 20 to $50,000 to get to that revocation hearing. And there's a good chance you're going to lose. And then you'll have to appeal it to court another hundred grand. And what it's going to do is weed out the low hanging fruit. They can't afford it. The license goes away. Yep. And, and they know uh, that. They know that it's a, it's a, like a pocket veto almost. That's right. Like, so, all right. You did mention questions and you know what, what's been going on for years is Derek on his YouTube channel has been taking questions. And uh, obviously at his law firm, at my law firm, I take gun questions all the time. Um, and now if you've got a question, you just go to info at munitionslawgroup.com. No, 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 no. Munitions group. Oh, forgive me. Info at munitionsgroup.com. Info at munitionsgroup.com. You submit a question. And yeah. just because you send an email and submit a question doesn't mean you're going to get it. Here's how it works. Picture a virtual ammo can. Everybody knows what an ammo can is. You can see it on our logo. And we're going to open up that ammo can. We're going to fold your little piece of paper that your question is on. We're going to put it in the ammo can and we're going to pull it out. And uh, then we're going to answer it every show. We're going to pick a question. And uh, so now it's time for the ammo can. And the question that I have drawn for the day is dear, near and dear to my heart. I like to hunt. And anybody who knows me and listens to everything else I talk about, they know I love to hunt. One of the things I like to do the most as far as deer hunting goes is wait till sort of early January and pull out the old smoke pole, the muzzle loader, 
and uh, sit in the snow and the cold and, and watch, uh, sort of try to get that late season buck if you haven't already bagged one or, you know, even if you're just hanging out. Um, and I get a question all the time in, the, in this week's ammo can is this question. I have a felony conviction. Uh, can I buy a muzzleloader? In other words, what they're really asking here is a muzzleloader, a firearm that would be subject to an exclusion uh, if you have a felony. And, you know, if I got this question in my office, I would say, you know what? You're going to have to call Derek. So the answer is it depends. Like everything else, it all depends. Like that, that <laughs> As a lawyer. So it depends on the state, right? So what's really interesting in Ohio is that the definition of firearm really, for the most part, tracks right along with the federal definition, except for one caveat. We don't have the antique firearm exception. And under antique firearm, they include black powder firearms. Black powder meaning non-convertible black powder, fully only black powder. Can't be converted to take normal cartridge loads. Under federal law, if you have what we call a legal disability from possessing a gun, you can still possess black powder only, right? Black powder only firearms. It's not considered a firearm. But under Ohio law, it's still considered a firearm. So if I have a burglary, which is considered an offense of violence, F3, it's a federal disability because it's a in Ohio above an F5, which mean, and in federal law it says if you're a felon convicted of a crime, punishable by more than one year in prison. And that means in Ohio an F4 or above. So that invokes that disability. Then under Ohio law, their disabilities say it's got to be a violent felony or a drug-related felony. So you have a disability in both states. So that's the first part of the analysis. So then you have to ask yourself, can I own the gun under federal law? Yes, you can. It's not a firearm. It's black powder. How about state law? No, I can't. It's considered a firearm. So how is that possible? So if I'm in fe- like, where can I own it? If, if I so in federal law, I can. Right. But I live in Ohio. You can't. So you'd be violating state law, not federal. But if you went to Florida. Florida, I believe, mirrors federal law, so you'd still be okay to have it maybe in Florida, right? So it just yep. depends on the state. Gotcha. You have to look at the state's laws. Which is, you know, awesome answer because I think uh, it explains a lot. But it also, I think the takeaway from all of this stuff is it's never simple. It's never simple. Like with gun, with gun questions I get, I can, even if I think I know the answer and it's simple, I always think for a second and almost always I can come up with like a, an exception or a right. gotcha or yeah, but, or what about? Right. And uh, it gets confusing. Well, so. there's even an exception within the exception. People think, oh, it's black powder. Well, in a lot of black powder you buy, you can just swap the barrel out and take a normal cartridge load. And you might not think of that because it's not in the law. Right. But that's how they enforce it because it's not truly black powder. So if I have a rifle that's got an interchangeable barrel, so it's a it's a 50 cal muzzle loader. I think Thompson Center makes these um, dimension maybe or something. I forget what it is, but they make a, they make a rifle that you can actually switch barrels and calibers. Right. And I'll bet you one of them is a muzzle loader barrel. Yeah, probably. It, it probably, or yeah. it, it, at least it's not beyond. That's, that's, that's a, what we call a general gun control act firearm. It's, it's not a, it's not a non firearm. Like it's gotta be only black powder. It cannot possibly take a normal load. Wow. So, uh, you know, what, what's the takeaway? Well, you got to go to info at uh, munitionsgroup.com and they, ask your question. And they can also just go to the website and we have like ask us a question. They can just put it in there as well. Yeah, perfect. So if you do ask a question uh, and it, it's not answered right away, just be patient. Yeah. And we'll get the website up and we'll have a better, more efficient process of this. So yeah. You don't have to do it through our law site. Yeah, but we're not going to let that kind of that complexity get in the way of progress here. We're going to no. keep we're going to keep trudging, no. along, trudging along here. So, look, if you like the you if you like the munitions podcast, I do. Uh, you should subscribe and we're going to get it out on, you know what we're going to do? I'm telling you this right now. We're going to get it on Facebook. We're going to get it out on all the social media sites. We're going to get it out on our website. And this is going to be the place, I promise you, this is going to be the place where real 
lawyers who speak both languages analyze gun crimes, analyze gun regulation, analyze gun issues in a way that you can understand them. Because, look, it is for the people. Just because they've they've written thousands and thousands of words of regulatory nonsense, uh, it doesn't mean that it's still not for the people. Um, Sometimes you just need a little podcast translated for you. Yeah, if, if, if anybody out there has any suggestions, like Steve said, if you want to come on, if you have any suggestions for guests, we, we do have a lot of people in the industry we know. We'd be happy to try and get them on and, and you know change things up from time to time. Yeah, and it's not always going to be this technical. I'm going to, we're going to talk about some hunting. We're going to talk about some uh, – some uh, Cool new products in the market. New products, training. Yeah, I'm, uh, picking, I'm picking up a new AR this weekend, actually. What Is it a custom it's one? Daniel Defense. Daniel Defense. Yeah. I've seen – those are their good ones, aren't they? Yeah, I like Daniel Defense. I've had one in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, this has been another episode of Munitions Podcast. And again, for now, it's info at munitionsgroup.com. If you want to get Derek at, in his regular practice, that's where you'd find him. If yeah, you, if you yeah. want to get me, I'm at still at uh, ohiolegaldefense.com. Big changes happening up there. I do criminal defense work, but we're going to rebrand, do some other stuff. But uh, uh, you can look us up at ohiolegaldefense.com right now. Uh, but until next time, this is Munitions Podcast. Check us out. And remember, everybody, as always, be safe and carry on.